Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. I'm Madeline Hutchins. I am a second-year student in the ISM. I study story medicine, um, and I'm here today with Ryan Dar. Uh, Ryan Dar did his doctoral work here at Yale, and he has now returned as part of the ISM Fellows Program. Um, so, Ryan, what piqued your interest in the ISM Fellows Program, and how does that intertwine with your work? First of all, let me say thank you for having me here. It's nice to talk to you about this. I've had interest in the ISM Fellows Program for a while. As you said, I was a doctoral student at Yale, so I've been aware of it. But after I graduated, I spent three years as a fellow at an interdisciplinary center at Princeton called the University Center for Human Values, which brought together philosophers, political theorists, scholars of religion, um, psychologists. And it was a wonderful experience to be at an interdisciplinary center. I mean, having people read your work from across different disciplines, having the opportunity to read their work and be in conversation was so enriching. As I became a little bit more interested in artistic and literary perspectives on the work I was doing, uh, that's, that's when the ISM Fellows Program became especially interesting because, again, it's an interdisciplinary center. It's a chance to work with people across disciplines, and in this case, especially people doing artistic perspectives. And then I saw uh, the Religion, Ecology, and Expressive Culture Initiative, and that's when I really thought, this, this is where I'd like to be. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Religion, Ecology, and Expressive Culture Initiative? Um, what is it? What's its purpose? Yeah, so it, it grew out of conversations uh, several years back, well before I was around, um, asking how can ISM take its focus on um, re religious practice, ritual, uh, the sacred arts, and use it to think more about some of the most important issues facing us today. Um, and lots of issues came up at the time, but um, ecology and, and environmental concerns was what uh, came to the fore as the kind of first focus. Um, and so the, the idea of the initiative is uh, to bring together work that draws from religion and the arts, as the work of ISM does, uh, in ways that focuses it on ecological concerns, on the environmental crisis, um, and support that work, disseminate that work, um, so the initiative is beginning with a series of events this spring that we're putting on. Um, we have a series called Mass Extinction, Art Ritual Story and the Sacred. Uh, we have um, an uh, exhibition called Sacred Biodiversity that's going to happen later in the spring. And then going forward, our main goal is actually to elicit uh, proposals from others. So we've put out a call for proposals, and we're hoping uh, people from other universities will put in proposals to do their own webinars, to do conferences, to do performances, to do exhibitions, all of which uh, will be drawing on religion, ecology, and the arts. And our, our hope is um, that this work will both speak to the, the academy, to, to the movement of um, environmental humanities, which is becoming really, really important, using the humanities to think about environmental issues, but also to the broader social and political issue of how we're going to respond to the climate crisis and our other environmental challenges. So we're, we're hoping to have both an academic focus, but also public 
dissemination of important work that can speak to religious communities and can speak to others who are concerned about these issues. As a student, this is definitely a really exciting initiative to see taking shape. Um, and I'm curious why this initiative now? That's a good question. I mean, 20 years ago might have been better. 10 years ago might have been better. Um, but, you know, it takes time to get these going. When the conversations began and coalesced around the environmental issue, the thought was this is something that has a very natural connection with the study of religion and the arts. I mean, many religious communities have sacred cosmologies, have religious practices that are engaged in some way with the natural forms in, in the world. Um, and uh, it, this is a moment in which this is such a pressing issue. The climate crisis is more and more evidently causing damage around the world. Um, political action is sort of happening, but so, so often stalled or coming up against barriers. In that sense, I think it's just a, a pressing issue, and the sooner we can be talking about it, the better. I'll, I'll also mention that Yale has for many years been a uh, leader in thinking about religion and ecology with the work of Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm and their Yale Forum for Religion and Ecology. And a lot of what we see ourselves doing is building on that and extending that in a direction that focuses more on the arts, ritual, religious practice. So how does your research in particular fit in with this initiative? My research is focused in particular on one of our many environmental challenges, and that's the issue of, of um, bio, the biodiversity crisis, or um, sometimes called mass extinction. Extinction is a normal event in evolutionary history. It, it's always occurred, but it's occurring now faster and faster. Um, scientists estimate something like 100 times faster than it was before humans spread around the globe, which is leading many to worry that we're entering a mass extinction event, which would be, um, from what scientists have found about the history of life on Earth, the sixth in Earth's history, and the first caused by one species in particular. My training is in religious ethics, so the questions I have when I come to this project are primarily ethical in nature. So I'm thinking about questions like, what is an extinction and why does it matter? Uh, what, how should we be valuing species, especially those species on the edge of extinction? How do we deal with the many cases in which conserving species clashes with other ethical goods that we should care about, like animal welfare and justice and decolonization? And when should we fight for a species to continue? And are there times that we should give up, should let species go? Um, but, but also questions about how do we recognize this loss? How do we live through it in ways that recognize it effectively, ritually, socially, politically? So you're teaching a class this semester that focuses on eco-theology and fiction. Um, and so I think a question that some folks might have, given the really pressing nature of the climate crisis, is why use fiction as a way to explore this when the reality is so urgent and pressing and serious? My particular interest in fiction and literature to think about this is not meant to displace a focus on reality. Um, but, I mean, reality doesn't come to us unmediated, even when we're thinking about reality, especially when we're thinking about realities like mass extinction or realities like climate change. These are massive realities, th things that we only know by compiling the work of thousands of scientists from around the world. Um, and they're things that we, we perceive them and conceive them through 
concepts and through narratives. And so I think even in our encounter with reality, we, we are already reckoning with the role of imagination and the role of narrative. I mean, you can think about how often climate change is framed through the lens of apocalypse, right? And why is that? Well, that's one of our most important inherited stories about catastrophe um, and about you know possible ends of species and possible ends of human life. Um, and so I, I think it's just unavoidable that we're going to encounter these realities in narrative forms through stories. Uh, and the, I mean, there's been a lot of interest in the environmental humanities in thinking about well, how, how can we tell new stories? What are the stories that we need in this moment? And I think that's a very important question. And thinking through novels is one way that I've tried to think about what kind of stories are appropriate, what kind of stories should we be telling. We had talked a little bit before about how there are those, especially in indigenous and black communities, who are already living in a post-apocalyptic world and have had to drastically rearrange uh, their ways of living due to extreme disruption, either from um, the transatlantic slave trade or from colonization, the ongoing process of colonization. Um, so how can reading fiction from these specific communities assist uh, in imagining living when the worst has come to pass? There's a certain way of, of talking about the, the environmental crises we face that, that goes something like this. Uh, the era of modernity has been an era of unprecedented wealth um, and you know, expansion of human knowledge and power, but it has some side effects. Um, and those side effects include you know, car carbon emissions that it turns out are gonna um, cause problems for us going forward. And so we, we need a kind of technical fix on that side effect. Um, to, in, to sort of continue this era of progress. Um, and uh, so, you know, some of the kind of cli-fi and the imagination, the ways of imagining future um, climate struggles participate in that way of telling the story. But as, as you're pointing out, um, the experience of many people ha has not been that modernity is this era of progress and, and wealth, but rather modernity is itself an era of something like repeated apocalypse. Um, and you see this very much, as you're pointing out, in um, the, the kind of cli-fi style narratives coming out of black and indigenous communities. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I think first of um, the book Moon of the Crusted Snow by uh, Wabgisha Rice, uh, that it's a, it's a story about um, a time of uh, something, something like apocalypse. You never actually know exactly what happens, but the, the children of the community are talking about, I keep using the word apocalypse, and an elderly woman responds to this saying, it's ridiculous to call this apocalypse. We've had apocalypse over and over again. Apocalypse was the, the arrival of disease, of colonization, of displacement, and we've always survived. So it's actually, it's not, it's, it's a kind of hopeful response in a way, not a pessimistic response. Um, so it, it's a way of putting what might come from climate and other environmental catastrophes in continuity with what has come instead of seeing it as something radically new. And that, that also, I think, shapes um, the way in which uh, 
these authors are imagining both what might come, but also strategies for survival. The kind of future climate crisis isn't something radically new, but the future climate catastrophe is seen as a continuation of what has happened in the past, and, and therefore um, ways of surviving that have worked in the past are still kind of available for adapting to the challenges posed by climate. To finish up, I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, way back when, at the start of your career, what sparked your interest in this field and this work, and like what's kept you going through it? My interest in environmental issues goes way back. Um, I mean, re really, I think it started um, in earnest in uh, when I was a high school teacher. So I, I spent a few years as a high school teacher in Chicago. I was a physics teacher. Um, and I realized maybe in my second year of teaching that um, cl climate change was nowhere in the high school science curriculum. It's not the kind of thing you would expect to teach in physics, um, but I, I had a little section on um, greenhouse, the greenhouse effect. And so I kind of turned that into a whole <laughs> climate focused uh, section of the course, just because I thought students really need to be aware of this, that this, this is really important to, um, for them to be thinking about. And I, from there, it sort of stayed with me throughout. So it, it wasn't the focus of my work during my doctoral program. It wasn't my dissertation, but it was something that I was publishing on during that time. And I, I was thinking then, especially about issues of um, what it means for individuals, what, what our contributions to climate change means for individuals. I mean, I think this is a difficult question where all, all of us, at least who have a certain degree of privilege, are aware of the ways in which our lifestyles are contributing to climate harms, and yet any individual response seems entirely um, inadequate and, and is entirely inadequate. So, so to what degree individuals ought to be changing their behaviors was, was a, a kind of the first issue that I was really thinking about. The, the focus on mass extinction started a couple years ago. I was at Princeton and I was uh, kind of last minute reassigned in the course I was going to teach. This was because the pandemic had just hit and, and a lot of things were shifting. Um, and so I was put on a course uh, that was taught by Peter Singer and David Wilcove. So Peter Singer is a famous philosopher. David Wilcove is a conservation biologist. And it was a course on ethical perspectives on environmental policy. And one of the big questions that ran throughout is how does conservation um, and, and the continued existence of species, how, in what way does that matter? And how does that, that mattering compare to other things that matter? And um, you know, P Peter Singer is, is a brilliant and persuasive and famous man. And when, when he's in um, a classroom, I discovered, students tend to be persuaded by him. And his view, he, he um, cares a lot about environmental issues, obviously. Um, but his view is that species, the, the survival of species as such, only matters instrumentally. It's only particular animals and particular human beings that matter in and of themselves ethically. And our only reason to keep around species is instrumental to the well-being of individual animals and individual human beings. And so as I say, uh, students generally found his views pretty persuasive um, in the sense that they didn't know how to respond. And even David Wilcove, I remember him clearly saying, um, I, I don't know how to argue against this. I mean, he did spend his life as a conservation biologist and um, I don't know how to argue against this. There's something dissatisfying here. And th th that's my sense of what a lot of students felt too. There's something dissatisfying here. So how do you articulate the value of the continued existence of species and of ecosystems 
Um, and so that, that, that's what got me started thinking, well, what, what do I want to say about this? And, and um, the genesis of the project was continuing to reflect on that and eventually um, turning that into a project. And, and it, it was partly that experience, too, the sense that um, Singer's very rational perspective was both sort of powerful and, and in a lot of ways compelling, but inadequate. And, and I, my sense was that um, for a lot of students, the inadequacy was... Uh, was that it was missing something beyond the kind of rational argumentation. And, and that, that's a little bit what sparked also the one interest in wanting to grow my encounter with the arts and thinking about the arts as a way to think maybe more holistically about what, what matters in the world beyond like, particular individuals. That's an amazing backstory. Um, thank you for your time today, and I'll see you around the quad. Thank you. It's great to talk. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.